Welcome to Hired Leaders, the companion podcast to the book, Pass Fail, The Urgent Need for Strategic Leadership in Higher Education. I'm Suzanne Brinker, and with my co-host, Audra Delaney-Hall, I will be bringing you conversations with presidents and VPs at America's colleges and universities to look at how we can transform and lead our institutions for a sustainable future. Hi, Leo. We're so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Susan. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah, we're just thrilled to to get your time. I think that recently, especially as I've been having conversations with higher leaders about institutional differentiation and transformation, Elon just seems to be the name that comes up more than any other. And so I would love to dig in with you on that. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into higher education? What made you decide to, to make that your career? And then what was your journey to eventually becoming president at Elon and now president emeritus? What are you focusing on now that you're not president there anymore? When I was an undergraduate, I'm the first in my family to get a four-year college degree. And I thought I was going to be a teacher. And I thought I was going to probably teach elementary school or high school. I, I had one of those tap on the shoulder moments as an undergrad where someone said, you could be a teacher at the university level. And this is how you do that. But so I went to, I went immediately to graduate school after undergraduate school. And that's how I got, that's how I got started on this path. I actually had an internship in the division of student life at my undergraduate alma mater and had a chance to rotate through a number of offices on campus and really as an undergraduate student, got interested in how higher education works. And so I've been very fortunate. To answer your question, I think I've been very fortunate to all along the way, A, have good mentors. I mean, people that took an interest in me and cared about me and gave me those tap on the shoulder moments that are so important in life. And I've also had this opportunity to work in what I call in-between spaces. Higher education can be so segmented and siloed, and but there's the most interesting work happens, I think, in these in-between spaces. So I, when I was working on my PhD, I was working for a program at Syracuse University called Project Advance, which provides high school seniors, talented high school seniors, with the opportunity to take rigorous, Syracuse University first year level classes in their high schools and to see how much this improved the lives of the teachers in the high school of their, they looked so much forward to teaching university classes and working with bright students and how this kept senior students challenged. And that's a really interesting space. Oftentimes the 12th grade is like this dead year between high school and, and college, and, and to see how we could make more creative use of that. My very first job after grad school was working at the University of Vermont in the Living Learning Center there, uh, which was a fantastic facility. It's still going strong, designed and built to be a living learning center where 600 students are living in, in pods or suites according to programs that either students have designed or faculty have designed and to break down these barriers between living and learning was such a rich environment. 
And then later in my career, and I think really what in some ways launched my career was I was the associate dean of the graduate school at Syracuse and received some big grants to start something called the Future Professoriate Project. And the idea behind this project was radical at the time. I just went back to Syracuse in September to celebrate the 30th anniversary of this program. I can't believe it. But when I started this program, I had hair and it was brown. And as you can see, neither of those things is no longer is, is true today. And the idea behind the Future Professorial Project was that the PhD needed to change for those doctoral students that wanted to become professors. The, the emphasis was almost exclusively on their preparation as scholars and not as future teachers. And there's this mythology, I think, among leaders of graduate programs that, well, all of our students are, are going to go and get jobs at research universities, which is, of course, not the case. Almost 90% of them are going to end up at places like Elon and Assumption, right, which highly prize quality teaching. So this program received big money from uh, the Pew Charitable Trust and the Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education to rethink doctoral education, to provide mentoring and increased level of experience in undergraduate teaching. Uh, and that program is still going strong. Again, breaking down this barrier between teaching and scholarship and helping students understand the, the connection between, between those two responsibilities as a, as a professional. And Leo, um, did this program also focus on like leadership skills for the students coming out of their PhD programs, like educating them in teaching, but also in like leading in the spaces that they could end up in? No, not. That's a great idea. But no, it was really about mostly they would come into graduate school, would start with traditional TA kinds of responsibilities. But it was the idea was to help them progress towards the end of their to the point where towards the end of their doctoral program, they would be teaching a class independently and under the mentorship of what we call the faculty teaching mentor. So we wanted to make sure they had a strong mentor in teaching as well as a strong mentor in their scholarship. They're essentially their dissertation advisor. Uh, and it, it turned out to be, turned out to be a really good model. So that's how you initially got into the space and then fell in love with it, I'm assuming. And, and, and they are all the way to president of Elon. That was well, happened. Well, I was, so I was, Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Syracuse. And then for a year, I was the interim dean. And that year, another university, one of the University of Wisconsin campuses, invited me to go there to be Dean of the Graduate School and Associate Vice Chancellor. And I was in that role for a very short time and the provost left. And after a national search, I was made provost. And I was happily being serving as provost in, in Wisconsin. And I Change Magazine published this list of 40 academics under 40 to watch. Condoleezza Rice was on that list. And wow. Nancy Cable, who's a former graduate school classmate of mine and a former 
chancellor of UNC Asheville was on that list. Well, I think every headhunter in the country had that list of names in front of them. And I started getting all kinds of opportunities to apply for presidencies. And I thought, this is, I'm way too, it's way too early for me to be a, a college president. And I just kept putting them in the recycling basket. And, and then this place called Elon wrote me. Which was and a very different thing then, huh? It was, but it was a place that just spoke to me. I just felt like called to this place. And I was the only presidency I ever applied for. And we, I remember, true story, I'll tell it really quickly. We took our daughters that summer when I had to make a decision whether I was going to put my hat in the ring to be president of Elon or not. We went to a, on a family vacation to D.C., and I, the girls were just out of earshot. And I was talking to my wife, Lori, and saying, when we get back, I mean, I have to tell Elon, I'm in, I'm out, and we've got to make a decision. Train, the metro pulls up, the doors open up, the double doors open up, and sitting right in front of us is this young lady wearing an Elon t-shirt. Right in uh -huh. front of, the, I said to Lori, I pointed to, I said to Lori, that's got to be a sign from God right there. It's wow. Funny story. That is crazy. It is crazy. It's funny. And then the story that you just told, because it's just so clear, the humility that you brought to your career, as well as that openness to doing the work that you were good at and called to. But what you said about the magic happens in the spaces in between, I think that is something for any higher ed leader and listening to this to just really internalize as oh we're getting goodness. frustrated with silos and the slow pace of change and how there's potential duplication of resources across different divisions to just really get interested in that and curious about that and what can we learn in those in-between phases, I'm really inspired. So thank you for, for saying that. I think others it will really resonate with as well. And I think we'll have a chance to explore this further perhaps later in the interview because I think one of the biggest divides at, at places like ours is between the liberal arts and the professions, right? Which, and there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be uh, a divide there at all. We should help students understand how connected the, the, the curricula are. But we've allowed this sort of false dichotomy to emerge where the liberal arts are seen as unpractical and won't lead to careers, where, when in contrast, employees are saying what you learn through a liberal arts education, those enduring skills and dispositions and knowledge, that, that's the most important thing. And I think a good business dean and or a dean of another professional school will be should be one of the greatest champions of a liberal arts education coupled with a business education. Uh, but higher ed does a very poor job of helping uh, the general public, I think, understand these in-between spaces, that things don't have to fall into these black and white categories. Yeah, I mean, the human mind loves those dichotomies and not so much the complementary dialectics that exist between these things that we love to put in black and white. And we as administrators have to get really clear on those first before we can represent them to the world. And I think that's probably not happening at the scale that it should. And People like you are helping us having those conversations right now. I know that in 
I mean, I want to hear the story about Elon, but before we get there, now you're president emeritus and you're working with boards and I don't know, you might be doing consulting beyond boards. What are the key issues that you're focusing on? I'm assuming your goal is to help other institutions take some of the lessons learned and transform themselves as well. So what are the issues you're focused on? Well, I'm relishing this post-presidential chapter. I mean, it's just an absolutely wonderful life. I'm teaching both graduate students and first-year students. I just ran up the hill to my office. I just finished having coffee with a former student in a first-year class who's actually transferring. We have a great relationship and she's transferring for all the best reasons, but she just took a gap semester in Australia and Japan and wanted to have coffee back on campus to see all of her friends. And I, teaching first years, I think is the best part of what I do. I really enjoy that experience. I've written two books, co-authored two books, one called Relationship Rich Education with Peter Felton. And then Peter and I decided that we really needed a version of that book for undergraduate students. So we invited two colleagues, B.C. Sarcivega uh, at Valencia College and Oscar Miranda Tapia at NC State University to collaborate with us on a second volume, both published by Johns Hopkins Press. So from the the minute I left the presidency, I was jumped into a a big book project and then followed by a a second one. And so teaching and writing, I'd say, have filled up the lion's share of my time. But I have also enjoyed serving on boards and I do some consulting, sometimes with boards of trustees. I have one presidential coaching contract that I've really enjoyed for two years. Now, the presidency can be a lonely job at times. And remember early on in our relationship, this particular president said, this is like breathing oxygen to have somebody to talk to and to share another perspective with or an alternative viewpoint. And I find, I find consulting and coaching very uh, gratifying, and I'm enjoying that as well. Along with some other projects, I just finished the forward to a new book that's out that I highly recommend. It's called Stepping Away by Lisa Jasinski. And it's about, it's about people like me, people who have left senior leadership positions and returned to the faculty and how to do that well. I wrote and I ended up writing the, I was interviewed by Lisa, and then she asked me to write the forward to her book. There's a lot of examples of how not to do this well. And, but it's an art form to be a a former college president and just not get into the business of trying to, you know, be involved, continue to be involved in the running of the institution. That's just very bad form and not a good idea at all. And so Lisa's book, I think, is a real contribution as well. She'd be a good podcast guest for you sometime. Yeah, thank you so much. And I love what you said, Leo, about coaching the president you're working with, because I think it everything that you're sharing ties back to the fact you're a very relationship focused person. And like from the very beginning of your professional life, when you thought you'd be a teacher and teach elementary school, like how you then took that to college and then now you're taking it to executives because that's still a form of teaching, right? It's a form of mentorship and being able to be there for people. And I think anyone listening here, whether they're a president or maybe they're in a a senior, any type of senior leadership 
type role, all of those roles can feel lonely in different ways, right? I think if you're, you know, trying to do the right thing and you're trying to be supportive to people, like sometimes you're by yourself. And so I could totally understand why that president was like, this is awesome. Like I have somebody else who's lived these challenges and maybe can even tell me, hey, I did this thing and it was not the right thing to do. So maybe try this instead. Exactly. And to put their troubles into perspectives, I mean, a few times Elon has been voted by, I don't know, for one of these ratings and rankings at one of the best run campuses in the United States. I said, well, don't let that fool you. Let me tell you some of the big screw ups that have happened here and, you know, how we have made big mistakes at times. And so this is part of this. The point is, will you learn from them and how do you respond and recover from the position in your, you're in now? The other piece of this is helping leaders understand that even when you're the present, your field of vision is limited. You can't see 360. And so a, board, a good board can help expand your peripheral vision, can help you see perspectives on the world that are valuable to you. Your faculty can. And put yourself in a position where you're going to hear diverse points of view. People will tell you what they're really thinking rather than what they th think you want to hear. I mean, I think it does come down to having some measure of humility about you and, and acknowledging that you can't see everything or understand everything. I'll give you an example. I once had a parent come in to see me in my office, it was on parents council, fantastic advisory body, huge at Elon. There's like a hundred people on it. But he walked into my office and he said, I, I need to tell you that no one does a better job of acculturating first year students to university life than Elon does. You guys are just, you've got that down. It's wonderful. Where you are falling down is career services. At the end of the four years, your students are wanting to get into Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs is not recruiting here because they don't know Elon. And I said, wow, you're right. And I asked an associate provost, uh, a woman by the name of Connie Book, who is happened to become my successor as president of the institution. And I said, Connie, fix this. This is your job to reinvent career services at Elon, which she took on with a vengeance. And we now have one of the top 10, 15 career service programs in the country. She brought in new leadership, new facilities, new mission. And that, that, parent happened to graduate from parents council and move on to my president's advisory council, which is another group that sort of broadened my perspective on leadership. And I remember one night we were having a conversation and he said, you guys listened to what we said and look at the difference. We really appreciate that. And I think that listening is one of the most important acts of, of leadership. You have to understand that no organization is perfect. And you can't be defensive when people are pointing out weaknesses. Uh, you have to respond to them and first of all, acknowledge them and then act. And that's what we did. I mean, yeah, 
the question everybody probably wants to ask you is you took Elon with your administration and, and your your teams across the institution from a regional um, school that not a lot of people had heard of to now a national leader in higher education that is well known for um, student experience, for career prep. That that's being held up as this poster child for institutional transformation. Everybody wants to hear what the secret sauce is like. What did you do? What can we do that you did? But I think you just gave us two things, which are listen and learn from things that don't go well, which aren't things that you could just do overnight, that you have to do every day as a leader and model to your institution every single day. Doesn't sound like there's quick fix secret sauce in there. If you have those, let us know. But Makes a whole lot of sense. That's the place to start. I, I don't know of any quick fixes. I guess if anybody dropped a billion dollar bomb on Assumption or Elon, we could, th those schools could rise pretty quickly. But short of that, it's about rolling up your sleeves and doing a lot of hard work well for a long time. And yeah. I want to say, I want to say from the outset that I inherited from my predecessor, Fred Young, an absolutely first-rate leadership team. I mean, just absolutely, absolutely stellar. I would put them up against any leadership team in the country. And of course, that team changed over 20 years. Almost everybody rotated in and out of positions, but we brought in people of very high quality. And I would also say that Elon's history of long presidential tenures, I think, has served us well. I was in office for over 19 years, my predecessor for 25, his predecessor for 16. Connie's already celebrates her sixth anniversary early next year. And so we, when you have rapid presidential change on a university campus, you often see a lot of slowdown of momentum and zigging and zagging in terms of planning. So that's, I think that served us well, is good leadership. But there's a book written about Elon's transformation by a higher ed scholar by the name of George Keller, and it's called Transforming a College. It's published by Johns Hopkins Press. It's, I think, one of Johns, it's gone through two editions, and I can't tell you how many copies of this book have been sold and in, entire boards of trustees have read it and entire faculties have read it as, as a case study, which was exactly George's goal. He felt there was a dearth of case study, good case study literature about higher educational institutional transformation in higher ed. And, and that's, and so he wrote a good one and it's been well studied, but here are three things that I think are the most essential things to keep in mind, maybe four. The first is it's so easy to say, but hard to do, but to keep this relentless focus on students and learning as the most important thing. If the central guiding ethic of every major decision at the institution, is this going to be good for students? Is this going to help students learn? Then you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, end up in the right place. I think in higher ed, though, we are oftentimes chasing metrics of prestige rather than metrics of student success. And that's a big mistake. I was with a board recently and they're 120 something in liberal arts 
national liberal arts colleges. And I think there's this idea that, well, gee, if we could just be in the top 100, I'm thinking if you're 98, that is <laughs> not going to change your or 76 or 49th. It's not going to, it's not going to make a difference. I don't think, but, but that's what we tend to, that's what we tend to be focused on those prestige measures rather than thinking very deeply about metrics of student success. And I'm talking about even boards of trustees looking at disaggregated dashboards. For instance, boards will oftentimes look at retention rates or participation rates in high impact practices like study abroad. But we want them to be asking deeper questions like, what's your retention rate for first-gen students? Oh, it's 30% lower than for the student body as a whole. What does that tell you? What questions should you be asking the administration about this delta? And so focus on students and learning and everybody, in, including the way the board of trustees looks at its dashboard, I think need to have that as the most important thing. Obviously, and I'm talking to two marketing officers here, there needs to be a strong institutional identity and there, there, needs, there need to be strong institutional distinctions. In the academic program and for us at Elon, this deep commitment to high quality experiential learning. We are as well known for that as we are for the quality of our individual academic programs where, you know, we have top 10 ranked programs in study abroad and study away and in internships and undergraduate research and leadership writing across the curriculum and, and so many of the other high impact practices that service and, and civic engagement, we have invested in those programs for over 30 years. And we have decided that's our institutional brand, experiential and engaged learning. And I know you take all these rankings and ratings with not just a grain of salt, but a truckload of salt, but for two years in a row, Elon has been ranked the top university of the nation for undergraduate teaching. And we've been highly ranked before that. And I think that reflects years of commitment to thinking deeply about investing in, to, to being great at teaching and to think about- First thing you said, which was focus on the student experience and the, the student, right? Which is directly related to teaching well. And, and so, it's, it shows how that focus on the mission actually translates to outcomes that also help with prestige, which we're all chasing, but we should not start by chasing prestige. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so investing in the faculty is the most important thing you can do. But if you're going to focus on students and learning, it, it has huge implications for architecture and the buildings we build. When we build new residence halls, are there spaces in them for faculty to live um, in, a, in apartments? When we build a new business school, as we did here at Elon, are there student engagement spaces right outside faculty offices? Or are students going to walk in and find the dean's office on the, the fourth floor tucked in the back where they'll never see the dean 
And when they go down a row of faculty offices, they're going to see this corridor of closed office doors. You know, that's not, that doesn't say engagement to me. So how do we create spaces where students and faculty are naturally going to interact, have a cup of coffee together and ensure that we are uh, a, a place that's walking the talk in, in terms of providing spaces for a focus on students and learning. Two other points I would mention that led to Elon's transformation, one of which is we are a planning-obsessed campus, proudly so. We did two 10-year strategic plans under my watch. Uh, the strategic plan before that was one that I helped finish up in the first couple of years of my presidency. And I think that was the first really challenging stretch strategic plan for the institution. Uh, so when it came time to do our second, the second strategic plan, the second really big strategic plan for the institution, I think the institution had gained a lot of confidence that it could plan and execute. So this is a this is an institution that is really focused on long-term goals. I, I think it takes 10 years to do hard things in higher education. Change is slow and you have to be focused, relentlessly focused on, on pursuing goals. And you have to be relentlessly focused in making sure that you're allocating resources towards the most important things, your top strategic goals. And that as you are doing annual planning and goal setting, that relates very directly to your strategic plan. I mean, that strategic plan needs to be visible. There needs to be a lot of community buy-in behind it. There has to be tremendous communication about progress that you're making towards it. And so I, I think having a planning obsessed culture has been very much to our advantage. The other thing is growth. We grew from about 3,800 students to 7,000 students during my tenure. Growth was good for us. We could, we could, we are a much stronger and better university in every respect at 7,000 than we were at 3,800. We have, when I came to Elon, the student faculty ratio, I think was 19 to one today. It's 12 or 13 to one. So we've grown the the higher rate at a higher rate than the student body. The campus is, has a higher percentage of students in residence. And you essentially, you're spreading your costs, which are so expensive in higher ed, right? Just think about what we spend on IT infrastructure at our institutions. You're taking those costs and spreading them out over a larger number of people. So we've been on what we call a slow growth trajectory. Um, But there's no question that growth fueled quality. That is interesting to me. The growth fueled quality. You uh, increased your faculty to student ratio. You have a higher percentage of students in residence than you did before. Because I think to a lot of institutions right now, there is this temptation to grow without adding infrastructure, especially with the opportunity of online or whether it's opening new campuses in kind of urban areas where all you need is like a, a few floors and a building, whatever it is. It seems like Elon achieved 
growth without losing who Elon has always been. Would you agree with that? I would. I would also say that I think another mistake, tragically, that a lot of campuses are making is that they are not building the infrastructure to ensure that all the students that they are admitting will be successful. So we've had a big emphasis over the course of the last decade in particular on trying to increase the number of first-generation students at Elon through our Odyssey program. That needs to be done very carefully and well. And we're very proud that students in that program have a graduation rate that exceeds the student body as a whole. And that's because a lot of thought went into the peer mentoring, the faculty and staff mentoring, the pre, the summer before the first year, there's an experience here on campus. So students are beginning to get acclimated a little bit. There are built-in opportunities to cover the cost of internship experiences and study abroad experiences because you don't want to invite students to campus where the participation rate in study abroad is 85% and have those students think, well, there's no way I'll ever have a passport and have that opportunity. Level the playing field so those students have opportunity as well. Oftentimes, I think if you're just opening the doors to students without providing the support, you don't have the infrastructure to ensure that those students are going to be successful. They're going to build the connections on campus to make them successful. What you're creating is a revolving door of failure and students leave with debt and disillusionment. And that's not a good thing. The bad thing. This podcast is sponsored by Viv Higher Education, a Boston-based women-owned consulting firm and marketing agency for colleges and universities. Viv specializes in integrating content and paid media strategies to drive brand awareness and enrollment growth. You can learn more about Viv at vivhighered.com, that's V-I-V-H-I-E.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you for sharing those four points, which to me, it sounded like our focus, have a strong institutional identity, be obsessed with planning and growth also as an essential focus area. Um, one of the things that really stuck with me when you came to Assumption, I was lucky enough to hear you present to the board there or be in dialogue with the board was you said, make sure that the main thing is the main thing. It's the main thing. Maybe there were three main things. How do we do that? Because we're all in these institutions obsessed with the next bright and shiny object. We think we constantly have to reinvent ourselves. What would you say for someone, whether they're a president or even just starting out in higher ed and they want to spend their career in this field and make an impact? How do we facilitate that culture shift just as an individual? How can we model that? What would you say are key things that somebody can do to bring that focus to their institution? I think we need more time for reflection and thinking. I mean, really deep thinking. I always recommend to fellow presidents that the time that I, I spent with the leadership of our board, the chair, the vice chair, the past chair, we would take a, two opportunities a year just to get away from campus and what I call step away from the fire time. It's a, uh, term coined by one of my, one of my former board chairs, Alan Gant. And 
I think presidents and board leadership are oftentimes talking about the crisis du jour, the newspaper headline that no one wanted to read, the personnel problem that's going to end up before the board. Those they're always those things are always going to be there, right? But there's always an issue of the day you could completely immerse yourself in. Exactly, and if that's all you're talking about, you are going to go nowhere. I mean, we've got to we've got to devote more time to thinking about where is this institution going to be a decade from now and around the corner from there. What are the big changes that are happening out there? What don't we see that we need to see, and what is the main thing? And is are the main things on the board agendas? Boards are so, I think, oftentimes caught up in the routines of performance, hearing reports from vice presidents. It's like these one PowerPoint presentation after another of solved problems. And and everyone applauds and we go have dinner together. And but is the board really focus? Are you harnessing the brain power of that board around some significant questions that are important to the future of, of the institution? I think yeah, that's, that's what... That's, as to that, what those significant questions are at right, most institutions. Right. So it's, I think it's, it's incumbent on... This really starts with presidential leadership and board leadership and senior staff leadership. I mean, I think that's where it begins. If the discipline is not there to think about the main things, I don't know where it's going to come from because you, that's what I think that's what top leadership needs to do is to be very sharp, clear about the agenda. Yeah. And that brings me to the question that I've I'm asking myself a lot, which is around, so higher ed is not a very top-down industry because we have this shared governance structure, but we're still relatively hierarchical, right, in how we think about our faculty and our, our staff. And do you think that there is a way to empower staff members who are not yet on the cabinet or have that power not be so concentrated with the board and the cabinet where people who have the ability to be really strategic and to focus, but maybe they're a director or maybe they're just getting started? How do we empower those people to contribute to strategic planning? Do you think that is an important thing to try and do? Oh, absolutely. I, I think what we're, faculty and staff are absolutely instrumental in shaping the institutional culture, right? They are the ones that are spending time with students. They walk the talk every day. In Classroom is the most important place on campus, in my view. And they, in the, the faculty are delivering those goods and staff are supporting them in that mission in, in so many important ways. I think at Elon, a, the strategic planning process is an opportunity for trustees and faculty and staff and students and even alumni to come together and create this common vision of where the institution is going. And and I so I think there are so many ways at the beginning of a strategic planning process that every person on campus can feel like they had an opportunity for input through surveys, through design charrettes, through other experiences. People can, people ought to have, have an opportunity to, to weigh in and think about the institution as a whole, not just their 
department or their program, but where is this? Think about big questions. Where is this place going to be in 10 years? What are the most important things for us collectively to focus on? And at Elon, there's a lot of accountability with the strategic plan in terms of where the leadership is assigned to get that work done. It might be with a provost, it might be with a dean who put together teams of people. And so faculty and staff have an opportunity to be part of those teams to execute the, the, the plans as well. I think hopefully you will have an institutional culture like ours where once the plan is set, pretty much people are behind it. There's no rear guard action about, well, we should have never done this or we didn't do this. It's like, all right, here's where we're going. And, and pretty much, I think we have a culture here of people rowing in the same direction. And that's rare. It's, that's a really good way of putting a good, it good metaphor for it. It's a, it's and a there's better, this implementation better. challenge too. Like if you're not focused, you can all be bought into what you think are the right questions and the right initiatives. And then you also need to be able to implement it with focus and consistency too, which is, I think, relates to what you're saying, right? Make sure you're focusing on the main thing, model that from the board to the cabinet, all the way through your faculty and staff, that everybody knows this is what you spend your hours on. If you have a choice, don't get completely gobbled up by the issue of the day or the crisis du jour, as you said. Right. That's exactly right. So, but I so once this plan is in motion, once it's got to be closely linked to budget, there have to be, I mean, an, inst an institution that is going to actually execute a plan and have it be something more than a pipe dream has to figure out where's the money going to come from to, to get this plan implemented. That's all hard work. That's an essential part of the, the planning process. But once all of that planning work is done, I think it, it is up to the leadership of the institution to keep a focus on that plan. And I think too oftentimes we see the plan being constructed for artificial reasons. The accreditors are coming. We have a new president who lasts two years. And then we have a new president come in and they want to do another strategic plan because they didn't like the old one. This is all very harmful behavior to to institutions. Makes it harder to get buy-in for the next time when we're it, telling people we're going to change everything we do. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's where presidential and board leadership and keeping that plan at the center of things, keeping that question about the main thing. The main thing ought to be highly related to your strategic plan, hopefully. Absolutely. No, surprises come along, right? I mean, who would have predicted an international pandemic. And so there are, and who would have predicted the financial crisis in 2008, 2009? I mean, you always are pivoting in higher ed because there are always going to be big surprises like 9-11. I mean, there'll be world events that happen that will shake the foundations of the institution at times. But if you have a plan, you have a better a better way of navigating those big waves that come along as you're sailing your little boat. What the strategic plan for us is the horizon point that we are sailing to, and that's 10 years away. And if you don't have a horizon point, if you don't know where you're going, I think you're going you're gonna to be subject to a lot of drift. And that's drift is dangerous for institutions, particularly today.
that I hate to end it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful. I know we're coming up on the end of our time together, but before we do that, I did have one specific question, which um, we can cut out if this is not accurate, but somebody recently told me that Elon actually had um, an, a religious affiliation and that's no longer the case. Is that true? That was shed over the last few decades? No, that's, this is important. We take very seriously as a part of our mission, the education of the whole students, mind, body, and spirit. We are proudly affiliated historically with the United Church of Christ. Got it. And, but we have a very strong, I would say, multi-faith orientation here on campus. We, if you come here as a Jewish student, I want you to find a Jewish community and leave here um, even with a stronger Jewish identity. If you are Roman Catholic, which is our 30% of our students are roughly are Roman Catholic at Elon. We have a full-time Franciscan priest on our campus as part of our Truett Center for Religious and Spiritual Life. Um, I think there are 17 people in the chaplain's office. We have an active Hillel Center. We have a part-time Muslim chaplain. This is a, what we're hoping to do at Elon is for all of our students to come and, and find a, a faith community if that's what they're looking for. But we're also hoping them that they will interact with people of other faiths and learn about how values are similar and sometimes different uh, from one another. So I, I think oftentimes we got rid of, we changed our mascot my first year. We used to be the fighting Christians. That and then became the Phoenix. That's what I was wondering. Like, was it right? And like a Phoenix almost like rising from the ashes? The, the campus, we're celebrating uh, this year the 100th anniversary of a big fire that almost destroyed the school. And so in ninth, January of 1923, and but like a Phoenix, Elon was reborn. I won't go into the total story of the mascot change, but as we were becoming a national institution, fighting Christians wasn't translating well from right. a, as marketers, you might understand this. It was a very controversial move. There are still people mm -hmm. that are upset about it, but we've been the Phoenix for 25 years now, and it's been a great, it's been a great mascot for us. I think sometimes people conflate the mascot change with our commitment to students' spiritual development. But I think we have almost as... Like we no longer care about religion here at Elon, not the case. But what you said is just so powerful. I, I think we have as many Roman Catholic students from Massachusetts as you have students at Assumption. So we have a big Roman Catholic community here. Um, so I, I oftentimes joke about that. I say we're founded by a mainline Protestant denomination. We have a Jewish name and we serve mostly Roman Catholics. <laughs> so I feel like we, I mean, we need more institutions who are willing to take that step and really be a place for faith-based dialogue without necessarily supposing that, I mean, it's not even true that Catholic schools are indoctrinating students with Catholic dogma, but there is not quite that willingness to say we're going to do things very differently going forward. And it, 
it gives us a stronger foundation, knock on wood, for like the present crisis that is taking place in Israel and Palestine. Yeah. I feel like there's more of a foundation of mutual trust and respect to have very difficult dialogues when you've worked very hard to create this climate of understanding about religious difference. It's it's such important work. And it was our board was a hundred percent behind this. And when and the board put up a lot of money to build the Newman Lumen Pavilion, which is our beautiful multi-faith center. It has a gorgeous sacred space in it um, that doesn't have any permanently installed religious icons. There's no crucifix, there's no Star of David. It can be used for Catholic Mass, and then it could an hour later it could be used for Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah service. And it's known on campus as the most scheduled building at Elon. It's a moving our moving and setup crew is always setting it up for one thing and then two hours later setting it up for something else. It's a fantastic space. I feel like it speaks to the fact that this generation, Gen Z, that's currently filling our institutions and future generations, that they will have this hunger for faith-based educational experiences or not even faith-based, but a hunger for exploration, right, of different faiths and perspectives, but not necessarily the same hunger that they would have had in the past for sort of denominational education. Exactly. And it's just so cool that you guys saw that coming and or experienced it at the time and were able to take what to my from my perspective bold move to change who you were as an institution right and that doesn't and the doormat of fighting christian is not that doormat of welcome i mean yeah but, just, and then you have to just explain it to everyone oh well, you don't really mean that it's <laughs> just not productive <laughs> it's not good branding <laughs> you have to offer a disclaimer right and so then it can work out better to make a change, but then honor historically like where the university has come over time, right? Like you can still honor like that as part of like its name was this because of why it was, but then move on and say why it needed to change and, and go forward from there. Right. We tried to honor, we graduated the fighting Christian at commencement. We gave, they took the old mascot. He walked across the stage. We gave him a diploma and- How many hundreds of years did it take him? <laughs> wow. Huh? <laughs> that's cool no thank you so much this was absolutely delightful to listen to you share about your experience at elon and, and give insight into how aspiring and existing higher ed leaders can lead in this industry and how we can differentiate our institutions a little bit more stay focused at our institutions for the change that we're hoping to enact um, it's been an absolute delight thank you so much well, it's my it's been my great pleasure to be with you both. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Audra. Thank you for joining us on this episode today. If you found value in our conversation, don't forget to subscribe to Higher Ed Leaders so you never miss an episode. Do leave a rating or review that really helps us get this podcast into the hands of those doing the transformative work of higher education leadership. And please do follow our company, Viv Higher Education, on LinkedIn or visit us at vivhighered.com. That's V-I-V-H-I-E-D.com. We will also be talking about our episodes using the hashtag Podcast. 
and we will see you next time.